the Black Aspiration Podcast. The Black Aspiration Project is a knowledge mobilization initiative that strives to ensure that the voices, experiences, and specific health concerns of Black communities are recognized, valued, and integrated into healthcare policies, practices, and support services. As part of the project, we have created a podcast series featuring different healthcare leaders, community members, and advocates for Black health, exploring the unique experiences, challenges, and resiliency of Black individuals in relation to their health and healthcare. Today, we are joined by Kevin Blanks, a PhD student in the English department at the George Washington University. As a Black, queer, and disabled scholar, his research interests include exploring the intersections of queer, queer theory, disability studies, and African-American literature toward imagining futurities for Black, queer, and crip lives. He holds a MA in English, also from George Washington, and a BA in creative writing from the University of Kansas. He, also ha he has also worked professionally as a high school literature teacher, curriculum director, and department chair in San Antonio, Texas, as well as a fourth grade reading interventionist in Washington, DC. Thank you for joining us today, Kevin. Thank you for having me and thank you for the lovely and warm introduction. <laughs> thank you. So the next question is a general question that we ask all of our guests on this podcast series. And this question is- One second. What stands between you and the world you wish to live in? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so a lot of the um, the things reflected in my work has to do with world making. Yeah. Um, and so that when I think and I sit and ponder about our world and where we're currently at and where we've come from, um, I look at it as an anti-Black world, right? Um, not just anti-racist, but anti-Black for the fact that it's intentionally designed um, against um, communities of color, but especially the Black community. Um, and so when we think about world making, it's a way to kind of uh, find an alternative solution, alternative pathway, um, a different world where the things that impact our communities no longer do so. Um, and so one of the things I think about, even like the title of the, the podcast itself is Black Aspiration. And we know aspiration gets its roots from to aspire, to breathe. And so when I think about world making, I think about how can we breathe life into a world where we can just be um, in all ways. We come in different ways. Blackness is not monolithic. And so I think we have to kind of make sure that we remember that. And so when I think about world making, I imagine a world where Blackness can exist it can thrive, it can survive. Um, and I think about futurity in ways that's just not uh, monolithic or it's not nationalist, it's not heteronormative, but it, it, it's just outside in all different myriads of form. And so that's kind of what really drives my project. It's very personal um, just because it is something that impacts me on an everyday basis. And so world making, um, and specifically black world making, um, it's, it's very important. And so I think that aligns um, very well with this project. Beautiful, thank you. Um, can you tell us a bit about your journey in academia thus far? What led you to pursue a PhD in English, specifically focusing on the intersections of disability studies, crip career theory, and African-American literature? Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, I started, um this journey kind of as a a way to celebrate and honor the inner child within me so i always started off kind of as a young scholar um for example i i grew up in a single mother household um i was the oldest of five um siblings and so one of the things that i was able to kind of do to uh to 
kind of entertain myself when we through text and literature and reading. And so the big thing with that was representation. Um, so when I would turn to books, it was something that I was missing was like, okay, where where are where are people that look like me? Where are the voices? There are a lot of silences. Um, and so that was something that always stood out to me. And so I always kind of yearned to look for that. And even when I went to undergrad and I got into under uh, creative writing, that was my first love. And it was to kind of help rem remedy that, um, that gap that we were having as far as representation. And then from there, that led me um, into teaching high school. Um, and it's the same things, right? So a lot of my students were black and brown. And we get the, when we think about the canon, um, we think about how those authors that we're teaching don't often reflect our students um, and their experiences, right? So I wanted to kind of go in and change that curriculum and find voices that they could read and see and see themselves in. And we would have discussions that they could relate to. Um, and I think that was kind of like the turning point that kind of sparked, okay, how can I um, do this at a different level? Um, and so that led me into pursuing uh, my PhD um, journey. And within that, that was about, okay, so entering academia, how can I enter the conversation? How can I add to the conversation? We already have a lot of brilliant thinkers, um, change agents, people that are um, already in the field, um, bridging together these different ideas, right? And so I wanted to kind of come in and add from my own experience of, again, world making, futurity. Um, so I realized coming in, you're kind of like, you figure out what your lane is. So you're like, am I gonna be an Afro pessimist? Am I, you know, am I thinking about liberation? And I was like, okay, well, I know I'm not that. I, I am, I'm very overly, maybe sometimes too much optimistic. Um, and so that kind of drove me to thinking about Afrofuturity um, as a way to where we can imagine um, otherwise, um, different possibilities. And so that kind of gave me the force to kind of hone into that within my own project. And so that's why I'm looking at different intersections um, and so I think about my own personal experience, and you even mentioned in the introduction being Black, disabled, and queer, and quip, right? I wanted, those are all different things, but when we think about intersectionality, we're trying to really bridge those together. Um, and so that's what I wanted to add to the conversation, because when we think about world making, I want to envision a world where those things are separate, right? I'm not just one of those things, we're all of those things. And so within academia, um, recently is trying to really bridge those things together. Um, we think about the River Compehe Collective statement, right? When we're looking for a Black liberation, we all can't be free until we're all free. And so that's the world that I imagine is when we can remedy those silences by being able to go back to the past, celebrate what we need to um, in order to move forward to a more fully and just future. Yeah, amazing. I think a lot of us, our research is an extension of our identity and who we are. And I think that there's a lot of value in that. Um, For sure. Yeah. I mean, uh, if you're gonna do, if you're gonna do a project and at this level and being academia, I mean, you gotta think about how, how does this relate to me? What yeah. is the purpose? What is the value? What do I bring? Um, what is my why, right? Why, what is the why that drives everything? And often, like you said, that is personal identity. Um, yeah. And then tying that to like the collective and building community through that as well, through shared differences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, in your online bio, and you touched on this a little bit, but in your online bio, you say that you're interested in imagining futurities for Black queer and crip lives. 
Could you share just a little bit more about what that means to you and how literature plays a role in this process? Yes, yes. Um, I think imagining futurity, right? Um, Black, quick, queer. So I'm thinking about um, disability. I'm thinking about queerness. And I'm thinking about how, even just on a theoretical level, what that work is doing, um, that's giving us grammar, that's giving us language. When I think about my own work and what I want to do in academia is to create accessibility. Um, so anything that I add or write or um, I'm part of, I wanted to make sure that it's accessible. Because I want, if it's in your hands, I want you to feel like you are invited into the text. Um, and so that way we can do this work alongside each other. So that's always been my number one priority in anything that I write is, can this be accessible to the people that matters um, most that can pick up and continue this work um, as I am doing as well? Um, and so that's the first thing. And then uh, futurity, again, just going back to world making, we can see that through queerness. Queerness is a really an act of resistance. Um, it's an act of refusal. And so that is also another thing that kind of just highlights a, maybe a different way of how we can imagine a way forward is resisting the systems that we have in place that no longer work for us, that aren't designed for us, um, that kind of allow us to kind of uh, pivot and go around it. Um, so that's kind of how I think about bringing the different intersectional identity that I also hold, um, but bring it to this work and being able to find out how they coalesce. Right. What does it mean to be all of these things at once? And I think that's why we want to make sure that we think about intersectionality and why that's important to not only our work, but our lives. Um, I think about and I know we'll probably touch on this when we think about healthcare, but I often think about disability. Right. I mean, um, traditionally in academia, disability has always been seen as or coded as white. Um, and so that already kind of has you know, the erasure of people of color. And so what that does, that only intuitionalizes um, us and makes us more vulnerable. It makes us more precarious. Um, we already don't have lack, uh, we have a lack of resources, right? Um, makes us more impoverished um, and we don't have access to healthcare that we should, right? And so kind of going back to your question, um, literature as a, as a way to think about representation. I think we can go back to what it means to go ahead and center those lives that have been pushed out to the to the margin and to bring them back into the conversation to the forefront. Because again, we can't make change unless we know exactly who is being um, impacted at that level, right? And so we wanna make sure that we shine light on those representations um, and literature provides a way to do that. It allows us to kind of think about how we can use theory, how we can use um, the lived experience um, and through that as a medium to think about, okay, well, what, how does disability look in our community? Because it looks very different. Um, how does being queer look? How does futurity look? What does Black liberation look like? And so literature just gives us a kind of a canvas that we can use to really paint that um, and to give us that language that we need to go forward. Amazing, yeah, thank you. Um, Reflecting on your time working with high school students as a literature teacher, curriculum director, and department chair, what were some of the challenges you faced? And conversely, what were the most rewarding aspects of your work in education? Ooh, working in high school. <laughs> um, I loved it. It was very rewarding. And I would say that one of the challenging aspects was being um, 
in that climate, during that time where critical race was um, a topic of, of discussion, um, politically, socially, um, and just trying to figure out a way of how that would impact not only uh, me as a teacher, but my students. Um, because we know that there, there was a lot of backlash, there was a lot of fear, there was a lot of uh, this threat that critical race in the classroom um, would somehow would somehow shine light on the way that our country is designed. Um, and so that, while that was a challenge, what I kind of did with that is I took that and used that as a strength. And so I kind of was like, okay, well, let's go back to the curriculum. Let's ask our students what it is that they envision um, as a response to this socio-political um, turmoil that's happening in our classroom. And so a lot of that is being able to kind of address that issue and just say, okay, well, through our own narrative, through our own literature, again, that going back to that representation, um, just kind of being able to kind of push back against the admin side of education, which can kind of be driven by, you know, the normative um, environment and just being able to use our students as a way to say, okay, boom, um, let's have these discussions that maybe um, we wouldn't normally have, right? Let's up the rigor. Um, and so I even just kind of like tying that back to when I taught fourth grade, and this is kind of like the catalyst for the work that I'm doing now on um, Black queer childhood. Um, what I realized is that I would often kind of sit back and just let my students kind of have their own discussions and I would just kind of listen. And what I realized is that they, they the question they asked, and they were nine, right? Nine years old. And we often think about children. We're like, okay, well, do they have agency? Um, you know, children are often seen, but not heard or listened to or taken seriously. Um, and on top of being black, right? Um, and when I, what I realized is that they have a lot to say. They have a lot to add to the conversation. Um, when they think about their condition of being black and the way that they internalize it, the way that they understand um, being in this country, um, that doesn't love them the way that they should or deserve. Um, and so just being able to kind of hear their fears and their concerns and their desires and what they want. And that was his own type of world making. And that kind of gesture to, okay, so this is the work that I want to get into. I want to go back and center not only Black lives, Black experiences, but also our Black children. Um, because when I think about giving back, I think about leaving a, a world behind for um, the future and for them to pick up the mantle and continue this work and this legacy. And so that was the most rewarding aspect of teaching. So just not only trying to address all of this, uh, the kind of tug of war and the backlash that was happening in the media as far as what we should and should not teach our students, it was just being able to kind of center and prioritize the students itself. Um, and that was the most important to me as an educator. Amazing. Yeah. Children are like sponges. They soak up and absorb everything. everything and they know so much. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's very important <laughs> that um, we, yeah, we provide that space for them to, to share their thoughts and their experiences. In a safe space. In a safe space. Yeah. Um, so for the next question, how might theory, i.e. queer theory, crip theory, et cetera, help us to think differently about Black health? Yes. So in terms of Black health, 
Um, what those, uh, the different theories help us to do is to give us language and grammar that we necessarily haven't had before in a way to kind of understand um, the work that we still need to do when it comes to the Black community, specifically with Black health, right? Um, first thing that comes to mind are disability studies, um, disability justice, social action. Um, and when we think about what under disability justice, what that means for the Black community, again, like I said before, is that disability impacts our communities um, in a much different way than it would um, with our, our white counterparts. Um, just because it does look different for us. And again, that we haven't always had the space to share how we're impacted by disability, right? Again, the way that this, when we think about going back to the past, because we can't move forward until we go back to the past, right? In the past, when we think about the history of chattel slavery, imperialism, um, colonialism, domination, all of that has led to this environment that we're in now, where again, um, we're in environments that are not the healthiest for us, right? When we think about food, um, when we think about water resources, think about Flint, Michigan, right? And where, who is specifically in those communities, um, it's very intentional. Um, we think about who, how we're impoverished, again, so how these things are all increasing now. Um, and we need theory as a way to kind of talk and discuss and articulate what's that play, what's happening, um, how we can start to kind of come together and build coalition um, across um, these differences, right? And so again, even intersectionality itself is, um, a, is a theoretical framework that allows us to kind of see, um, it's not just a black issue, right? It's a black and disability issue. It's um, a black and queer issue. It's so if all these things are intergrained or intertwined. And so theory allows us to kind of really zoom in and kind of see how are we all impacted at a marginalized um, level, right? So in terms of health, another another aspect, mental health, right? Um, in our community, we know that we have a history of not claiming disability for a myriad of reasons, right? Um, at one point, we're violent to be considered disabled in our community. Um, and so now, with, for example, with theory, it allows us to kind of see, okay, what does, what does that mean now in the contemporary present uh, to claim disability? Or, or on the other side, um, on the other hand, what if, what if we're, what about those that are not able to claim disability? And what does that mean? And how do we give language for that? Because whether or not we claim it, could we have the agency to do so or not? But we have to look at the way that our environment is societally structured, right? And how that can lead and lead to us becoming disabled, whether or not we claim that, right? Again, Flint, Michigan, how that theory allows us to kind of see how there's a correlation between the way that we're consuming that water and how that could lead to a slow violence of disability, right? And so when we think about Black health, Theory really does a lot of work and being able to understand just where it originates. Um, we can kind of break down the different entanglements and how it specifically impacts our communities. Um, and so it's very relevant to make sure that we are able to understand how theory is working and how we can continue to build off of that scholarship that's already in place. Because again, the most important thing is to really bridge those different things together. Disability, okay, what about Black disability? So how did that change the theory? So that's the work that we're doing in academia now um, in order to make sure that we continue towards disability justice, 
Um, we're centering Black health, um, the Black experience. We're centering Black liberation, all of those things. Thank you. Um, for the next question, the average healthcare professional, professional probably hasn't encountered most of the texts that you engage with in your own work. What's one text you think that every healthcare professional should read, particularly the of the particularly for those who work with people who are black, queer, and or disabled? Tell us why. Yes. Uh, first person that comes to mind is this brilliant scholar um, by the name of Sammy Salk. Um, they are black, they're queer, they're disabled, um, and they have a text called Black Disability Politics. Um, and again, what that goes to is, and they also have a chapter on um, Black health and how it impacts specifically Black women. As we know, that is an issue, like I think off the dome, um, black, maternal, black maternal and mortality rates. Um, again, not being able to think about um, listening to the Black women, right? And listening to how she has agency um, over her body. And so we can see how that impacts even in the hospital and the healthcare system. And so these type of texts allow us to kind of understand why this anti-Blackness is happening, why is it proliferating, and what we can kind of do to reconcile that. So this is a very wonderful text. Um, it really gives us a language, which is the, the politics of it, right? So it gives us a language of why, again, going back to literature, why representation matters. With more representation comes more awareness. With more awareness comes more empathy, more care, more love, more acknowledgement of what's happening um, and not this erasure that we've seen thus far. And so it's a way to kind of shine light on what we need to fix in order so that way we can move forward. And again, that just really paints the way for futurity, right? So the more of this that we have, more conversation that you and I are having, this will really help to kind of lead and open a pathway for imagining a different world where these issues still aren't prevalent. Um, and again, going back to the idea of aspiration. So I would definitely recommend that text for sure. Brilliant. Yes, I've definitely heard of that uh, text. I think I have came across uh, it in one of my uh, classes in undergrad. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, that was the last question. Thank you so much, uh, Kevin Blanks, for joining me today. And for the audience, the Black Aspiration Project is sponsored by Western University's Research Mobilization, Creation and Innovation Grants for Shirt-Related Research. Thank you so much for having me.